Just a brief note before we get started, this episode is part of a special series we recorded at the Institute for Energy Law's annual Oil and Gas Conference. Some of the discussion will focus on issues facing the oil and gas industry specifically, but we think all our listeners will learn something of value. We also want to give a special thanks to the Institute for Energy Law for hosting us. Now, on with the show. Welcome, everyone, to the In-House Roundhouse, where in-house lawyers, outside counsel, and industry experts gather around to discuss current issues and best practices. I'm your host, Mark Enriquez. I'm a commercial litigator with Womble Bond Dickinson. With me is my producer, Brian Ewing. Our guest today is General Counsel and Vice President of Chevron North America Exploration and Production Company, Christy McCarthy. Christy, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. I also have my partner, Liz Klingensmith, who's a commercial litigator here in our Houston office. Liz, thanks for joining the podcast. Thanks for having me. Um, Christy, I think we want to talk today a little bit about kind of building and managing the in-house team. Uh, but let's start with uh, telling our listeners a little bit about yourself and your background. So how did you, how did you end up at, at Chevron and give us some of your career history? Sure. So I started my career in private practice at King and & Spalding and here in Houston. Mm-hmm. And Chevron was one of my big clients. I was a, also a litigator and I represented Chevron in multiple different matters. And and knew the culture of the company and knew what it was all about and seemed like the right kind of fit for me as a person. And so when the opportunity arose in 2008, I applied for a job and it just so happened that we tried a case right before that and won for Chevron, which worked out well. <laughs> That's nice. Um, Always there. So that's a good thing to put on your resume. <laughs> right. I talk um, about company loyalty. I want a case that's for right. you. That's right. Right in the middle of that. Then I'm dropping my resume. Hmm. So that was in 2008. And I joined as an in-house litigator. And okay. I did that for a while. I went from private practice supporting Chevron to actually doing it from the inside. And then I did that for about five years. And then I was promoted to managing counsel responsible for the mid-continent U.S., which was basically everything except for the Appalachia area and uh, the San Joaquin Valley out in Bakersfield. I was also responsible for remotely. I I managed a team of roughly 15 people uh, between the two locations. Gotcha. Uh, And then I was laterally moved to a more of a headquarter role for the whole operating company of Chevron North America Exploration and Production Company and also remotely responsible for the Appalachia area. And then my uh, mentor and sponsor and boss retired two years ago and promoted me into this role. Gotcha. And, and tell us a little mm-hmm. bit about the size, I guess, of the Chevron legal department and in your particular operating unit. How many lawyers, kind of what types of roles do the in-house yeah. lawyers have? So we have a, over 400 lawyers in Chevron. But wow. in my purview, we have just under 50. Okay. And then we also have a paralegal and a administrative support that, that work for us as well. Okay. But that's still, for a lot of our listeners, that's going to sound pretty huge. They come from one, two, four-person, you know, legal department. So having 300 total and 50 there, I mean, it's kind of, it's like a good-sized law firm in terms of total numbers of lawyers and number of lawyers in an office. That sounds sounds similar. You know, we, um, my legal boss, the vice president of Upstream Legal, likes to call us a a global law firm kind of thing mm-hmm. because we really are. We have multiple different practice areas and we coordinate and collaborate across the globe. So it is, yeah. it's exciting. It's a great place to work. Yeah, no, that's neat. 
I'm, I'm fascinated too by the experience of an in-house litigator. There aren't too many of those uh, roles, and as someone that does, yeah, I know Liz and I both are outside litigators. What what kind of cases did you did you actually go into court as an in-house litigator? How did that How did that work? It's a good question. Generally speaking, our practice is not to have the in-house lawyer go to court. I mean appear in court. They right. actually go to court, but not right. be the right. one they who are. They might argue. sit there at the table, right. but they're not making the closing argument. Right. <laughs> um, and because, you know, we really, the, I view the role of an in-house litigator to be the strategy setter, you know, the overarching person watching over the matter, but equally importantly, the conduit back to the business to take uh, what is going on in complex legal terms and explain it in plain English and mm-hmm. uh, expose risk and recommendations to the clients. And so if you're if you're preparing for a deposition or you're preparing for a hearing, it's really hard to do both. So while we have absolute involvement in shaping the strategy for a hearing or trial, it's important to have the person that's actually doing it really be focused on that so that you can be the one focused to communicate back to the client. That said, I was a bit of a small claims court tree limb expert. (laughs) From time to time, we would get random cases like that and we might might show up in court for that. But my days of trying and appearing in court uh, were mostly over by the time I joined Chevron. Gotcha. Did you ever have to fight the urge to jump up and object or take over? I mean, yes. <laughs> there, there were <laughs> times, but right. you know, generally speaking, we hire amazing outside counsel, but sometimes you're just so passionate about something that you just can't help yourself. And then, you know, frankly, there were, when I joined the company, there were some cases I inherited that I had really no hand in selecting counsel. I might not have gelled as well with some of those people early on, you know, not, not many, but it happens. And so there were times that I would not even just stand up in court, but even just wanting to sort of wordsmith what they did when it really didn't matter. You know, um, I evolved a lot over time, Mm -hmm. less and less of that happened, but it's hard at first because you're so used to being the one on the front line and then you come in and you're an observer in those moments. Um, but it was a good learning experience. We hear a lot about, uh, I think, kind of what you're touching on, which is on the podcast when we're talking to GCs and in-house folks about making that shift from attorney to attorney who is providing business counsel and that there is that difference. And it is a kind of a tricky switch to flip. Your insight on that would be I'd be curious about, you know, making that. I couldn't agree more. Uh, you know, when I sort of my philosophy, my um, for lack of a better term, tagline for my organization is to be a business enabler. Mm. And, you know, that's a really different skill than asking the right question in a deposition. And, you know, I think the skills are related. And I think having been trained as a litigator served me well for where I am today. But it's a totally different mindset. And even just communicating with executives in a company it's a much different way to communicate than having a, a strategy session amongst lawyers about the ins and outs and the nuances of a case or a matter. Right. And so it is, it's very different and you have to train yourself in that. I mean, you know, the amount of, as an analogy, if you'll indulge me, my first day in law school, I remember my criminal law professor asked, you know, the facts of a case and the guy got up and gave every minute detail, you know, talking about your yellow tie with the blue and the, I mean, to the painful degree. And he, and the professor wrote every detail up on the chalkboard. And then on the last day he went back to it and sort of said, now what would you say are the germane facts? And it was (laughs) just to show how we had evolved. Mm -hmm. And I feel like it's similar to that from outside Mm -hmm. counsel to in-house because the amount of time an executive has to communicate with you is so 
little that you really have to be judicious with your time. It's almost like an elevator speech. And Mm -hmm. And when I first joined, it was very difficult for me to understand how possible that was because of, I, I saw all the details that were important. So it's a skill that you hone over time. It's very different. You're absolutely right. Yeah, I think that's a good question, Brian, and I appreciate you know that, that highlight. And that, that's a good transition, too, to, to managing the team because not only do you have to have that skill, but you have to figure out a way to promote that communication style with the other lawyers that are there. So how do you do that? Thoughts on how do I guess imbue that philosophy or help others learn the lesson you've learned about communicating that way? Model and feedback, for sure. (laughs) Model the behavior you want and give feedback when you don't get the behavior you want. (laughs) But just to be real clear, though, I've been involved in multiple sessions at Chevron where we've sort of done to newer lawyers, hey, this is the way you communicate sort of what you were asking. This is the way you communicate here versus the way you might have been used to if you were if you were just communicating with lawyers. Mm-hmm. And I actually, in teaching some of those classes, I would put up my emails from my first year as a lawyer at Chevron and make fun of them and just sort oh, wow. of say, That's hey, I wish yeah. I would have known then what I know now. And if I would have done it mm. today, I would have written it like this. And I actually show what I, how I would have revised the email so I think when you can be honest about the fact that you went through the growing pains too and right. you demonstrate that you had to learn from it, I'm hoping that it accelerates. And I, and I found people, it resonated with people. But giving, I try to give very real-time feedback, both constructive and positives. It's really hard sometimes to remember to give positive feedback, but the positive feedback is almost easier, I mean better, because if I can say, hey, Mark, you really communicated perfectly when you said it like this because you were succinct yet informative and do more of that then they know what good looks like and sometimes I think people get too busy to do that and I try really hard because if you can let people know what good looks like they want to step up and do it and we've got amazing lawyers at Chevron so when you show them the roadmap they generally follow it I had an editor who talked about um, positive feedback and the fact that it's like if you are uh, someone is teaching archery and the, the student has hit, you know, the target a couple of times, but missed, you know, generally, and you're trying to teach them and all you're pointing out is how they've missed, then what they're going to walk away with is, well, I just did it wrong, all of it wrong. Like I'm not doing any of it right. And so if you, it's not Bingo. about, um, uh, it's about honing in, right? It's about refining the targeting. And so you have to say like, here, that's what you did right. See how you almost got it there. And so, like you said, that positive feedback becomes incredibly important in the targeting, in, in the getting it and honing it in. And it's a, it, it just takes discipline to do it because mm-hmm. you're so busy. But, you know, and, and you, I sometimes get in my head thinking, oh, well, they, everybody knows what I want, but they don't know. I mean, mm-hmm. you think they know. <laughs> and, and some people do, but some people are newer. And, and so it's really, you're right. And if you really hone in on this is what you did well, they're going to replicate it in spades. That's why I'm a big fan of the strengths finder test because it, it <laughs> demonstrates what you're good at rather than focusing on what you're not and it, your unique gifts. And I, and I just, I think it's all kind of one and the same. 
Yeah. Well, we're we're certainly big believers of strength finders. We've all done it at Womble, and I've got it. I've got my strengths on my desk. Uh, you know, at the office, some people put it outside their doors. We may have listeners that are less familiar with the the uh, strength finder process. So tell tell us a little bit about the what what is it when you say strength finders? What what are we? What are sure. you talking about? It's um it's a test that was derived by really famous leadership consultants that I can't remember their name. I think Gallup did it. Gallup, right? Gallup, yes. Gallup, yep. Um, and thank you. Mm-hmm. And uh. Basically, you, it's sort of like any other Myers-Briggs or any other test. You have to answer questions about yourself, and then it generates these traits that they highlight the top few, and then they can give you a deeper dive if you pay a little more for it, which I think is worth it, um, and telling you what your natural gifts are and how they all work together. And what we did, and I bet you all did since you all are doing it at your firm, we did with my leadership team. We all took it, and then we had a consultant um, sort of map it to what we're good at as a group, what each of us is good right. at, how we can best be utilized. And it's amazing when you start to see what you already thought someone was good at and then it comes to life on the paper or maybe something you didn't even know. And I feel like it helps me get the most out of my team. And yeah. I, it makes me the best I can be because I it, it validates sort of what I'm passionate about. Right. That is the best part, I think, about the strength finder test or Myers-Briggs or whatever you do is you're like, okay, like I'm really okay in who I am and I know I'm good at these things and I know you already know that you're maybe not so good at the bottom of the list, but sort of finding a way to be able to appreciate what your strengths are and get into that zone where that's what you're focused on and knowing that there are other people on the team that have strengths that are different from yours that sort of fill in you know where you may be lacking or not as focused on I think it's I think it's great we actually map out each office like oh that's what all of the offices strengths are what you know Mm -hmm. it's a I think it's a really neat thing and I find it useful too for communicating you know people who are really analytical need a lot more detail absolutely people who are not analytical just want big picture one-liner and so it really does help i think generally just building relationships and rapport to be able to talk to people in ways that they prefer being talked to frankly i think that's true and i think it ties into your feedback point too because different people may want different feedback like that's true i'm competitive not too surprising as a litigator but right so i may you know value something where you're in you know a friendly competition thing other people may be very anti-competitive they don't want they don't want that but they they need you know verbal feedback or something right you know it's it's helpful to know that as you manage it is um, and i would just like to say i've not heard of a firm taking such a widespread view of that type of test i think it's my hat's off to your firm i think it's only going to serve you well and you know with your clients too and I, I, that says a lot about your firm so thank yeah. you yeah we found it valuable we've, we've done um, I got introduced to it we had a leadership program so now everyone's done it but in our leadership program we did this deep dive into the strengths and kind of sharing and focusing on how do you build some of you know what you do and really focus on the strengths and I do think you know, as a culture, and certainly if you're kind of the type A that many of us lawyers are, <laughs> right, you're often focused more on weaknesses, like, you know, oh, well, I need to improve this, or I'm really good at that, but I wish I needed, and, you know, the focus on strengths and saying, let's focus, instead of spending all the time trying to improve this area, you know, up to average, let's really, you know, do what you enjoy and make your strengths even stronger, because you'll thrive, and you'll be more, you'll make a much bigger contribution to the organization, doing what you naturally do well, as a opposed to trying to improve, you know, a weaker area. And so I, I think it is. I think it's powerful insight in terms of, you know, both for yourself but also for the team. So I agree. I think that's good. So, 
you know, some people hear, okay, I need to work on a team, and I like the idea of positive reinforcement, but sometimes draw blanks in terms of how do I actually make that happen, either structurally or, you know, reminders. Do you have tips on, like, I think we all acknowledge positive feedback's good, but I think at least, certainly I feel, you know, in our firm, we often fall short of what would be ideal, and it's it's often a combination of everyone's really busy and also a sense of, you know, I'm going to assume everything's fine unless there's a problem, right? We, well, we have that mentality. It's like, I'm going to assume that the kid, you know, there's everything's going well. And if you mess something up, then we'll come talk to you. Mm-hmm. And I imagine that's true in-house too. How do you kind of break that? How yeah. do you break that cycle and really force yourself to acknowledge, hey, that was a great brief or, hey, that was a good discussion or analysis? Yeah. I was just going to say, it goes to the old adage that uh, no news is good news. And mm-hmm. as soon as you get the news, it's usually bad. Yeah. Right. And I think you do have to be deliberate about providing positive feedback to your team. So I think it takes a lot of intention, is my guess. I completely agree. You know, we've been on a journey at Chevron. It's not like it was, it's always been that way. So I think part of it is tone at the top. You know, our CEO is very clear that feedback is critical to the success of our organization and making the best organization we can have. And when your CEO walks the talk, it's very easy to walk the talk. So that has helped. As a result of his view of that, he's enlisted courses and little bite-sized nuggets you can take on how to be better at giving and receiving feedback, both Hmm. constructive and positive. And he really does walk the talk. He has an executive leadership team, and he sat with them all and made them all say one thing that he could do better and went around the room and, um, you know, modeled it and took the feedback. And those stories come cascading down and people realize you can do it. I like that. So I think that helps. But for me, what is a tip? You know, I, again, it's what I talked about before. It's recognizing that when people know what goods look, looks like they show up for it. So when you know that, and I can absolutely vouch for people improve when you commit to doing it, there's no business case not to do it. So for me, it's just remember, think about it. Like I try to be very deliberate when I have a one-on-one with my direct reports, what feedback am I going to give in this session? Well, I try to come with feedback and I also ask for feedback. Mm. And, you know, early on in my leadership journey, it was, well, what feedback do you have for me? And they look at you with crickets. Right. But <laughs> now I try to be in this meeting. I was really hoping to um, persuade on this point. How effective was I at that? And so then oh, so you, you're very specific. You give I them a try specific. to be so that because I think you're you're you feel safer and it's easier to give specific feedback rather than how do you think I did? What do you, what feedback do you have for me? Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I've found that that helps. And also I've found that if you can get someone like lower in the organization, I meet with people regularly and I ask them things like, I'll give you an example. I have one who was just raving about one of my direct reports as a boss. And I had also been this person's boss at one time in, in my career. And, and I said, tell me what it is about him that you really like. And so she shared it. And I said, tell me what you like about him as your, being your boss more than you liked about me being your boss. Ooh. And then so she <laughs> answered it. And yes. I said, well, what did you like better about me being your boss than him? And then she answered that. So then I was able to get real-time feedback wow. about myself and my direct report. And what was a surprising and kind of unassuming way. She didn't even really plan to or was thinking that yes. she would be giving that feedback. But when she started raving about him, it opened the door. It, and I look for natural yeah. opportunities to do that because it's amazing what you find out. That's great. Sort of yeah. about asking the right question. Yes, because it is when someone asks you, what feedback do you have for me? You're co- like, sort of like oh, what am I going to say to that? You know, right. oh, everything's great. Right. You know? Oh, you're great. I like yeah. you. <laughs> right, right. I started an anonymous feedback email thing. Really? And again, it's almost like crickets. 
it's you know, and, and it's you would think you would get more, but I think people just are kind of inundated with email tools, you know, and so to find different ways to draw it out of people is what I'm really trying to do. And then, the, and I found the more specific you can be, the more people show up to give feedback. Well, and I also think that people generally don't like to be critical in front of the person that they're criticizing. Yes. That's and true. so you do need to find creative ways to make it okay and give permission and even welcome that kind of feedback. Yes. And I also find, so I have one direct report in particular who is very good about giving me constructive feedback. And she and I have a long history together. And I, I know that she has my back. And so when she's giving me constructive feedback, it's only because she wants me to get better. Mm. Because we have that relationship, I'm able to share broadly. So-and-so gave me this feedback, and I'm working on it. And I really appreciate that she did it. And then people start to know that they can do yes. it. And you create that mm. psychological safety that I think needs to be there in order to have um, a real constructive conversation with yeah. someone. Yeah, that is a great point, too, because I think if you don't have that relationship, it's easy to get defensive and negative on yes. why are they attacking me, right? And it's not really, it's constructive you know, feedback, but it often feels like an attack, particularly if you're not sure where it's coming from. That's are they it. gunning for my job? Are they, you know, want to get rid of me for some other reason? Right. Are they making it up? And certainly, I think even more than most people as lawyers, in my experience, you tend to put up, you're very <laughs> good at putting yeah. up defenses and, you know, yes. object, move to strike. Yes. <laughs> you know, you know it's, you it's, so it's so true. so right. You, we you just don't, to, you know, we're ready to do, if we feel attacked yeah we're gonna bristle and it's fight true. back or you know. and knowing that is why i try so hard to create that trust culture you have to have the trust culture first mm -hmm. before you give the the feedback in my opinion and so we try to do team buildings and also mm. just other things to create psychological safety because then you can have that real conversation but if you try to have it and you don't have that relationship it's right it's not going to go well especially with lawyers to your yeah. point now, for team building, do you do those internally? Do you contract out? Do you go to do a rope score somewhere? I mean, what, what can you give some concrete examples for maybe someone that says, oh, this is a good idea. We've never done a team building exercise. You All know, of what, the above. All it of, runs okay. the gamut. It can just be uh, having cocktails after work or going to dinner as a group, you know, just really casually or, you know, coffee in the middle of the day or things like we've done the escape room. And oh, yeah. um, I know one of my colleagues is doing an improv session with her group to try to get people to think on their feet. And one of my other colleagues did a cooking class with her team, to, did a big movie day. And her mm. team in particular is uh, has a lot of young kids. And so they don't really like to do things after hours. So she got them all to leave early and go to the movie and spend it was one of those where you could chit chat you know before and after and you know little things like that go a long way and then you can do more formal things I mean another thing right. we did it that was really powerful is we've been doing a lot of curriculum around diversity and inclusion and in my at least on my leadership team we did the um, privilege line where you ask a bunch of questions about people like um, step forward if you were raised by oh, yeah, a single mom some, or right. step forward mm -hmm. if you um, have a disability and just learning that about one another really makes you um, yeah. gel and really does. I mean, and that was free, you know I mean? It was mm -hmm. just asking questions and stepping right. forward. So it's, it's hmm. the totality of it. It's not any one, one thing, but all those things were plus even just the strengths finder. That's a team building in and of it's itself, true. you know? So just taking time to do things that aren't substantive work right. and spending time together and prioritizing that, I think speaks volumes that people to people that you're invested in them. 
Those are great. I love that. I mean, that's just a great range and list of options, I think, for people to think about doing. Good. That's terrific. I didn't want to finish talking about managing a team without some discussion of coaching, mentoring, sponsorship. I mean, those are all buzzwords that people are using a lot. I think everyone acknowledges those are important. But I wonder, as someone that's kind of moved up in the process, if you've got advice for folks out there about, you know, tips for how to be a good mentor, sponsor, coach, or structurally the kind of programs you think may work to sure. promote those? Yeah, I was I was asked the question, a similar question earlier today by the leadership class here in mm-hmm. um, IEL, but it was the opposite sort of how do you get a mentor or sponsor? And, and you're asking me, what do you, how yeah. do you be a good mentor or sponsor? Right. I'd like to just touch if I could touch on both. the, yeah, the go, other no, question. Do, do touch the other one. It's good too. I think it's, it's important for folks to understand you can seek out a mentor and you know mentors that I've that I've gelled with I've sought out but you don't obviously you don't say hey will you be my mentor it's not it's it's more organic than that but you can't really seek out a sponsor they seek you out and I think that's the fundamental difference and I feel like you need both I've been blessed in my career to have both and sometimes um, the same person can be both but oftentimes they're different and so I think to get a good sponsor, you need to be really good at what you do and show up every day, you know, ready to tackle the world and you'll be noticed and then you'll, you'll have your sponsor. And on the other side of it to your question about how are you, how can you be a good mentor and sponsor as, as a good mentor, I think you really have to be a good listener. You have to understand what it is that, that person wants from you. I mentor a lot of different people, and I'm, I'm always asking them to come prepared for the session because I don't want our time to be about what I think they should want it to be about. I want our time to be about what they want. It. Some of them want to talk about career secession. Some of them want to talk about a particular sticky issue they're dealing with. Some of them want to talk about work-life balance, Some of, whatever it is, and I don't want to presume I know. And so being a good listener, asking them what, what they come prepared and ask, listening to what's on their mind and, and where, where they go with the conversation, I think makes you a good mentor. And then really not trying to have judgment around what they're talking about and not assuming that your way of doing things is the way that they should do it. Just being very open-minded and empathetic to the fact that they're a different person. And so I think all of those are a recipe for a good mentor, but also sharing your advice and, and guidance because that's what they're there for. I mean, right. on the sponsor side, I think, um, you know, you know it when you see it. And when you, all of a, sometimes it happens organically too. All of a sudden you realize, wow, maybe I'm sponsoring this person. I'm sure talking about them a lot. I'm sure promoting them for this assignment. I'm sure, <laughs> right. you know. You may be and, a sponsor without even, yeah. you know, putting that tag on it. But once you realize it, just going all in with it and recognizing mm. that you're their sponsor and it's, it's incumbent upon you to set that person up. And in my role, I think it's one of the most important jobs is to, is to, leave the ladder down for everyone else. You know, who's coming down the pipeline? What are we doing to ensure that those people that we think are high potential are ready for the next job? And being very deliberate about that. And I think that makes a good sponsor. It's great. That was kind of a long-winded answer. No, I think it's it's right on the money. I see you smiling, Yes, (laughs) because I love mentoring young lawyers. In fact, it's like one of my favorite things to do. But I don't go into it thinking, oh, I'm gonna tell them how to have success. I view my role as being receptive to their ideas of what success looks like 
to them yes. and then helping them along the way or making suggestions about how they might get from this point to this next point in their career. And I am always, I won't say I'm all, some of my mentees surprise me uh, more than others and maybe do a better job about being more thoughtful and intentional about what they want out of our sessions together. But it's always such a joy to see them succeed. And I find that so rewarding. And I think the same is true with being a sponsor. It kind of comes about organically. And once you're there, you're there. And you know you're there. And you just keep talking about And again, watching them develop and succeed into so the Ugh. people they can be, it's, it's, it's one of the best parts of doing that I kind of agree work. more and what you were talking it occurred to me oftentimes too if your mentee is super prepared and on it they are the ones that tend to evolve into sponsorees if that's the right word mm-hmm. you know it demonstrates that proactivity and right. um, it's just another facet yeah and you get that pay it forward mentality of I was someone helped me I'm gonna help them yeah and I, and I think that right it's a positive cycle yeah. of And sometimes people just really need someone that they can talk to who may be outside their organization. Safe space. A safe space to sort of share ideas and collaborate on sort of what's next. What do I do next? And so it's just such a privilege to be able to walk through that process with so many young lawyers. But Liz, too, even we need that. Oh, absolutely. I I feel like people think that you get to these levels and you all of a sudden stop (laughs) needing mentoring and guidance. I mean, you're almost (laughs) more hungry for it because there's fewer people who you can really be candid with about what your needs are. Yeah, that's true. I think for me, I have, you know, my own sort of, I guess I would describe it as informal board of advisors, most of whom are, are not in Chevron because you know, I may not be able to give them all the facts of my media issue because it would be confidential for the company, but I can bounce ideas off of them and learn from them about ways that they do things and, and bring that to my work. And then the ones who are in Chevron, I can talk more openly about the issue. And so it's nice to have a combination of all that at this level. You never stop learning and you never stop needing that guidance. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. In fact, I'm still in touch with my mentor sponsor from my early days as an associate, even though he's retired now. Hmm. But anytime I have a big career decision to make or need help with a case or going to trial or picking a jury, I mean, he's the guy that I call and he's always there and we can always sit down and talk about whatever it is. It's so important. Yeah. That's terrific. No, I think that's great. Um, I know we're, we're beginning to run out of time. I did want to talk a little bit about IEL. We're here at the, uh, at the terrific IEL conference. I know you're co-chair. You want to share a little bit about uh, your role in IEL and just sure. t- tell our listeners that may not be as familiar with IEL, some of the things that are offered here. Yeah, the Institute for Energy Law is a fantastic organization. I think it is, you know, cream of the crop when it comes to offering programming that is enriching and fulfilling and also important networking, fulfilling and enriching networking. And that balance is often not there. It may be a great content, but the networking isn't as spot on or vice versa. And I feel like IEL hits both. And they really, you know, the mission to make everyone's lives better that's a member, they really they really live up to that. And so I'm honored to be on the executive committee with Liz. That's mm-hmm. how I got to be friends with Liz is through that work. Okay. And, well, that's valuable and, right there. <laughs> it is. You meet people you might you never need? come across. And and mm-hmm. it, so serving on the executive, executive committee has been really fun. And both Liz and I have had numerous roles. My current role is the co-chair of the annual conference. This is sort mm-hmm. of the 
conference extraordinaire for it's the big one. The big yeah, one. I mean, we have one. a bunch of programs, right. but this and is kind of. I understand kind of you've the, got record attendance this year. Or we near, do. It looks We're like a great excited. thing. So congratulations! Thank on that. you, yeah. and great um, speakers and a great no, lineup. No, I've heard good things and, already. Um, so I'm just really honored to be a part of it. That's terrific. No, that's good. Good information for our folks. Um, any final remarks? I didn't get any other tips you might want to provide to those folks out there. I think we've covered some terrific ground in terms of teams, but other you've given some great tips. Any any parting remarks? I think you had started out by asking me or, or saying mm-hmm. that this is for the newer GC who's on the road. And I would say yes. um, that if you're thinking about what you can do to cultivate the best team, I think it's your responsibility to be more of a gardener, you know, um, hmm. pruning and, and mining the group rather than um, a dictator or an offensive line coach or something. I think you need to be more of a um, lead from behind, be there to assist and remove barriers and um, keep them focused on what they need to do, mentor and guide and let them be on the front lines making the real-time decisions because that's the most efficient, effective way to get work done. But be that soft place to land when the hard decisions need to be made and back them up and help them when they do. So thinking of it like that, I think um, it's, a, it's a mindset that it's the servant mentality. What do they need and how can I be there for them and be the backstop when they need me to be, but not in their way so they can get their work done. That would be my advice. I think that's fantastic advice, and I will say it's great advice and one that I don't know that we often hear from lawyers, right? No. I mean, I, I've talked to a lot of lawyers <laughs> on this podcast, um, but I don't know that we often have that mentality, right? I mean, particularly trial lawyers like the three of us that have been there, right? That's not a, you know, that servant leadership being behind. That's not, we're used to being out front in a courtroom, but I think it's so true from a team and department standpoint, right? The ability to say, look, I'm not going to, I'm not going to be doing everything. I can't do everything. This is a big team. And I I love the way you put that, Christy. I think that's, that's good. That is really good advice that I hope our listeners take to heart. Thank you. This is, you know, this is, this, you're, you're there to help them flourish. You're not the dictator leading the charge and giving the military assignments out. You're there supporting you know, the work. So yeah, it's, I mean, it's Mm -hmm. been a journey seeing it work both ways, being someone who's seen both types of leadership. I think you get more discretionary effort and the most out of people when you assume that they can do amazing things and help them do them rather than thinking that your way is the only right way and that a chain of command should be followed because you're not going to get as much discretionary effort out of people that way. They're going to do what you need them to do, but that might be about it. But mm-hmm. if you get out of if you you pave the way and get out of their way, the sky's the limit, and people will just continue to amaze you at what they can do. That's awesome. All right. Well, thank you so much. Thank I you. This has it. been really fun. Yeah. I, no, this is I great. Really those appreciate really the time. Good. No, those were, were great tips. So thank you. I appreciate it, Liz. Thanks for joining us as well. Of course, it was a pleasure. As always. Next time we great. have our lunches, you're gonna have to, we're gonna have to swap strength finder tests. Absolutely. We'll definitely do that. <laughs> yeah, you can learn even more about it. Exactly. Other, right? I mean, it's amazing. It's actually on the firm intranet. So you can look up anybody's strengths in any office. That's fabulous. Anywhere. That is fabulous. And they even have it broken down by office. So if you want to know what the purse strengths of the Charlotte office are, you can just pull up the It's amazing. I love it. And then we do the in-depth follow-up. So mm-hmm. we have all sorts of... You guys of- are lucky. It's amazing. I'll say that. Yeah. That's wonderful. Yeah. 
Thank you for your time. Absolutely, Christy. No, this is great. I I appreciate it. I think uh, we have a lot of good tips, and I I think uh, listeners really enjoy putting those into practice and and adopting the gardener philosophy (laughs) as they go forward. As they go forward with their with their. I can't take credit for the philosophy. I learned about it through my leadership journey. There's a book called Team of Teams that talks a lot about it. If anyone's interested in more. Okay. More. That's great. Team of Teams is the name of that yes. book. And if people have want to contact you, what's the best way to do that? At LinkedIn or email? LinkedIn, you can right? find me through LinkedIn. Find yeah, LinkedIn absolutely. There. That's okay. probably the easiest way. All right. That sounds great. Because um, you may have sparked a lot of people saying, hey, <laughs> and I, I, I want to do it. I want to order some gardening tools. That's no, hilarious. That's right. <laughs> I'll be on LinkedIn with my tools ready yeah, to go. <laughs> you'll be ready. No, that sounds great. All right. Well, thank you for listening. That concludes uh, this episode of the In-House Roundhouse. I want to remind our listeners you can find previous episodes and subscribe to the podcast at our website, WombleBondDickinson.com, or go to iTunes, Google Play Store, SoundCloud, wherever you get your podcasts. If you have questions or comments, you can share them with us on LinkedIn or Twitter. Um, I'm always interested in topics for future episodes as well. Thanks, everyone, for listening. This has been the In-House Roundhouse. See you at the next station. In-House Roundhouse is a production of Womblebond Dickinson. Brian Ewing is our producer, and Robert Daughtry is our audio engineer.